Aloha. Aloha. Come on, just try it again. Aloha. Aloha. Oh, that feels so good. So if you've not already done so, uh, pull out your sermon notes and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're going to be doing an exposition of uh, verses 37 through 39 today, John 7, 37 through 39. Now, having not seen y'all last Sunday, as our extended family was on COVID protocol, I pray that everyone had a blessed Christmas and a happy new year. Did you get what you asked for this Christmas? Well, I got what I asked for. You see, when we found out that there was COVID in our house, I made the decision that out of an abundance of caution, uh, we would miss the Christmas Eve service and we would miss the Sunday service. And I also made the decision that we would, I would miss my weekly visit to see my mom. I think most of you know that my mom is 92 years old and she suffers from dementia. The last thing that I wanted to do was give the gift of COVID to my mom or to the other ladies and the caretakers at the senior home where she resides. But then I got a call from my sister this past Monday saying that my mom was suffering from a bout of delusion. This happens more than I care to think about when someone has dementia. She was saying that she was in prison she couldn't understand why she was being incarcerated. Why wouldn't they let her go? My sister asked if I was going to be able to see our mom this week. So I arrived at the COVID testing place in Liberty Hill at 7.15 a.m. Tuesday morning so that I could be the first in line for one of the 30 tests that they had available. The test center opened at 8, and by 8.30, I was declared negative. Merry Christmas. That allowed me to see, to spend Wednesday morning with my mom. Best Christmas present I could have asked for. Now my wife got what she asked for also. She asked that our friends, the Pharaohs, would be able to extend what was supposed to be a three-hour cruise, well, no, I mean a six-day visit, and stay with us through Christmas. Yep. It's like she wished COVID on them. Maybe it's her spiritual gift. I don't know. By the way, thank you for all your prayers. They survived. They're doing well. Christina tested negative. We're pretty sure that Roger is negative, but he wasn't able to take a test. Um, they're back at home, and hopefully they're tuned in right now. All kidding aside, though, those of us who claim to be repentant, born-again believers in Jesus Christ know that the greatest gift that we have been given did not come from under a Christmas tree. Our greatest gift is what the true meaning of Christmas is all about, that God sent His Son, His only Son, into this world, and that whosoever would believe would not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Every other gift could how could it possibly compare? Amen? The last time I was blessed to bring the message, I preached a sermon entitled, The Kuleana of Every Christian. So here's a little test. Who can tell me what the Hawaiian word kuleana means? Family. Oh, ohana is family. Ah. But thank you for trying. Commission. Oh, thank you, sir. That's too. <laughs> 
I better tell you right now, kuleana means responsibility. And I said it's the kuleana of every born-again believer of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel to those in need of salvation that God puts in their path. I posited that the Bible makes it clear that not all who are true disciples of Christ will have the gift of evangelism. And some of you were probably jumping up and down and yelling, Amen. And that's when I brought down the hammer, or at least God did. Because that's where I said, if you claim to be a repentant, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, not having the gift of evangelism does not relieve you of your responsibility to share the gospel. Like Vody Bauckham would say, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. I talked about how fear can stop you from proclaiming the Great Commission by driving you away from your dependence on God. I also talked about how that same fear can help you by driving you to God. I shared some of the wrong motives to share the gospel, and we ended up with what I believe is the right way, the biblical way, the way God designed for his children to proclaim the good news. We are to share the gospel with the eyes and heart of God. My prayer is that you saw the opportunity to share the glorious gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ and followed through on that commission that you've been entrusted with sometime between now and then. So how many of you are up to learning a little bit of Hawaiian today? Go ahead and raise your hand. Well, there's a couple out there and I'm going to force it on all of you. While the most important thing is to preach God's word as he meant it to be preached, and that is what we call expository preaching, as you can see by the sermon title, we have a little Hawaiian lesson in store. Let me begin our lesson by just giving you the correct pronunciation. The title of today's sermon is Ka Viola. Can you say that with me? Ka Viola. One more time. Ka Viola. See, you got it. Now remember it. Good job, Ohana. But you're going to have to wait a little deeper into the sermon to find out what it means. Today I want to talk about the second best gift that we could receive that Jesus promises his disciples in today's scripture reading. This second gift will answer the question every Christian must be able to answer. Now that I am a Christian, now that I have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, how do I live out this faith? And I am going to challenge you today to think beyond the standard, how do I live the Christian life and not do these things that I used to do? Because I think God expects more of us. The prelude to our sermon goes like this. God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. Isn't that what we see as we read through the heroes of the faith in this book? He equipped a stutterer like Moses, he equipped a drunkard like Noah, he equipped an adulterer and a murderer like David, he equipped a shepherd like Amos. God equipped the tax collector, Matthew. He equipped a group of fishermen led by one who would deny him three times, Peter. He equipped a doubter like Thomas. 
God equipped a server, a deacon named Stephen. He equipped a right-wing ultra-conservative named Saul. Throughout the history of mankind today, we see time and again that God does not call the equipped, that God, he equips the called. God the Father didn't look down through the portal of time and see that the adult, Matthew Breeden, and he'd look at him and he said, hey, Jesus, check that guy out. Look how talented and gifted that Matthew is. I think he's going to make a great pastor. That's not how he operates. Now, just as he transforms and changes us to know him and love him when we are justified, he continues to transform us and change us as we are sanctified. That's how he equips the called. The premise that I am setting this sermon up on today is this. If you are truly a born-again Christian, you have been equipped to do what you never could do under your own power. Let's face it, if we could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own power, we'd be doing it all day, every day. But since we don't proclaim the gospel all day, every day, then under what power have we been given to accomplish such a monumental task? And so that brings us to our scripture reading today. I want you to follow along as I read John chapter 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. Ohana, here's a good adage to remember when reading our Bible. If we are to understand what the Holy Spirit wants us to comprehend in any particular uh, section of Scripture, it is always wise to identify the who, the where, and the when. The Gospel writer John makes it clear that the who that he is speaking about is Jesus. We can determine who he is speaking to by identifying the where and the when. As to the where, beginning with verse 2 of chapter 7, we see that Jesus is in Jerusalem, and to be more precise, he's in the temple courts where a rabbi would be expected to go to teach. And in fact, beginning in verse 14, we see that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. As to the when, we find that the beginning of the chapter in the beginning of the chapter, that Jesus has traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of tabernacles. Some of your versions may say the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. The Jewish word for tabernacles is Sukkot. Kog Sukkot was the last of the seven convocations that God instituted for the people, Israel, 
way back in Leviticus 23. A convocation was the sacred assembly of all the Israelites, and it was ordered not by man, nor any king, nor a high priest, but by Yahweh. It was also one of the three convocations where the Jews were commanded to appear before the Lord your God in the place where he shall choose. So the who are the Jews who had gathered for the celebration. Jesus had a guaranteed audience. Sukkot was an eight-day Sabbath-to-Sabbath celebration commemorating the end of the annual harvest. But more importantly, to remember when God went with Israel and saved Israel time and time again as they journeyed through the desert those 40 years in the wilderness when the home of the Jews was nothing more than a tent. During the seven days of Kog Sukkot, the Jews would live in temporary tabernacles or tents, often built on the rooftops of their houses. The Feast of Tabernacles plays an important part or important role throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. We find in 1 Kings 2 that Solomon's temple was dedicated to the Lord at this time. We also know in Nehemiah 8 that after the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, Ezra reads from the book during the Feast of Tabernacles and revival breaks out amongst the Jews. One of my favorite Bible verses is in Nehemiah 8.10. Anybody know the verse? I'll use it for our prayer as we end today's sermon. Finally, it is also helpful in setting the context to know that each morning during the eight days of Kog Sukkot, the high priest, accompanied by a procession of people, went down from the temple to the pool of Siloam and filled a golden pitcher of water. Then to the accompaniment of song and dance, the crowd would return to the temple through the water gate where that high priest would pour out the water along with a pitcher of wine at the base of the altar. The water would flow down the steps of the altar and out of the temple. This was meant to, was meant to commemorate how God brought flowing water from a rock to save his chosen people as they wandered through the wilderness in thirst first at Massa and then at Meribah. It is recorded that as the water was poured out on the altar, all the people, and historians estimate that that was thousands each day, would recite aloud Isaiah 12.3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It is with this backdrop on the eighth and final day of the feast that Jesus stands up and he shouts, he cries for all to hear, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's like Jesus is saying, what you are commemorating in the pouring of the water on this altar, it's but a shadow of what I bring to you. Come to me and I will give you water to drink, living water, from the wells of salvation, and you will be saved. You see that, church? 
Remember the exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? You can turn there if you'd like. John asked her for a drink of water, and she is amazed that he would even talk to her because Jews, in a classic case of racism, had nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus told her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That was verse 10. The Samaritan woman doesn't know what to think. She tells Jesus, where do you get such water? To which he replies, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you see how that exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman points to verse 37? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Church, you have to love that word, anyone. Because he does not say, those who are smart enough. And he does not say, those who are rich enough. And he does not say, those who are this color or this gender. He says, anyone. If you're an anyone, raise your hand. That's what I thought. Amen. The greatest gift that we could ever receive is alluded to in verse 37. Jesus took on flesh and came into the world that he created. He became like us so that he could take our sin and crucify it on the cross. Jesus is saying, come to me and drink so that you may die to your old self and that you may have my exchanged new life, eternal life. Come to me and drink. The Apostle Paul expresses this first gift like this in Romans 6 and 23. He says the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What greater love, what greater gift could there be? You see, the promise of Jesus comes in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so here's what, where you get to learn what kaiviola means. It means the living water. This church is what I referred to in the beginning of our sermon as the second greatest gift we can receive. We note that Jesus says that these rivers of living water are flowing. Flowing water denotes life, as opposed to stagnant water that is often teeming with bacteria and parasites that bring death. But what is this flowing rivers of living water? Well, thank God that John adds verse 38, or verse 39. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, 
because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had not suffered and died on the cross, had not returned, and then had not ascended into heaven. Who is Kaviola? The Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that the way to live the transformed life of a repentant, born-again believer in Jesus Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does Kaviola, the Holy Spirit, do for those who are saved? Well, let me give you just three things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of every true, repentant, born-again believer. First, the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth. Years ago, I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with a coworker in California. The soil of his heart appeared to be rich and ready for the seed of the word, and he seemed to drink it in, what I proclaimed, just like a thirsty man in need of water. And then he went home and talked to his wife. Turns out that his wife was a professor, a professor of world religions at Napa Junior College. She had studied the Bible along with every other religion and had come to the conclusion that they were all man-made inventions. How is it that someone who had studied the Bible could come to the conclusion that it was not true? I mean, is it, are that we just that much smarter than this wife and professor? I hope you're not thinking that because that's a lie that doesn't work. That's not grace. And how is it that my friend could hear the gospel and seemingly believe one day and not believe the next? Scripture tells me that the Holy Spirit had not illuminated the truth to them. What do I mean? Well, you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, we find Jesus speaking to a crowd of people on a beach. And in beginning in, in verse 3, I'll give you a second to get there. We read, as he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Can you see why I believe my friend did not become a Christian? I believe his heart was a rocky ground heart. Jesus explains this all in verses 20 and 21. He says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, 
but he endures for a while. And when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And what about his wife, the learned college professor? I think the answer is found in Matthew 13 and 13. Hear the words of Jesus beginning in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. If someone is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who came to this earth to be the once and for all full and final payment for our sins when he suffered and died on the cross, the Holy Spirit will have to illuminate that truth. Otherwise, they will only see but not see, hear but not hear. They won't understand. The Apostle Paul says as much smack in the middle of one of the longest run-on run sentences in the Bible. I mean, if the Apostle Paul had been in my English class in high school, he'd have failed. This sentence is found in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. Six verses, one sentence. In fact, what I want you to do is take the time to read Ephesians 1 this week because I guarantee you, you will be blessed. But for the sake of brevity, I will only read verses 17 through 19, where Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's another word for illuminated. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I cannot say that sentence in one breath. How can a believer know what the hope is we've been called to, or the immeasurable power that God has given to those who believe? Paul says this occurs when Kaviola, the Holy Spirit, opens, enlightens, illuminates the eyes of our heart. We understand truth. We gain wisdom through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's one more point that I want to touch on before we move on. 
There is a truth here for all of us who proclaim the gospel, and that should be all of us. The results of our faithful proclamation of the gospel are not dependent on us. For that matter, they're not dependent on the person who hears the gospel. The results of our faithful proclamation of the gospel are totally, 100% dependent on God, the Holy Spirit, who illuminates the truth so that those who hear can understand it. Amen? Amen. Our commission, our great commission, is to be seed sowers. Throw out the seed. It is God who makes the seed sprout and grow deep roots. Second, the Holy Spirit seals our redemption. This is otherwise known as the doctrine of eternal security. I say this because there are so many supposedly Christians or Christian churches that teach that once you are saved, once you have come to Jesus to satisfy your thirst, you can lose your salvation. One version of this lie is that God came to save us and then he left us to our own devices. He saved us from the law and then he expected us to adhere to the law once we were saved. Some of those who believe this lie will sin and then they have to repent and be baptized all over again. They end up getting baptized over and over again because the previous baptism just wasn't a real one. Others who believe this lie will tell you that they no longer sin. It's as, as if they ignore the Apostle Paul's own admission of his inability to live the sin-free Christian life in Romans chapter 7. He says in verses 21 through 24, So I find it to be a law that when I, do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is in Romans chapter 8 if you all want to go there this week. It's as if what Jesus did on the cross so that you could come to him and drink and believe wasn't enough. It's as if your salvation is really dependent on what you do. Hear me, church. That is not biblical Christianity. The Bible alone, sola scriptura, teaches that it is by the grace of God alone, sola gratia. Through, the faith, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, sola Christus, to the glory of God alone, soli de la gloria, that we have been given new life in Christ, we have been given a born-again life. The Holy Spirit seals that redemption. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee, some versions of the Bible say guarantor, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can we lose our salvation once we are born again? I like what John MacArthur says, if we could lose our salvation, we would. Nope, we can't lose it. The Holy Spirit has sealed the deal. Which brings us to point number three. How do we live this new life in Christ? How do we say no to the flesh and yes to God? How do we do the things that God commands us to do? Third, the Holy Spirit empowers us. In John 14, the disciples are fretting. They're perplexed. They're anxious because Jesus has made it clear that he's going to be going away. They've been following him for three years now, calling him the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of Israel. They expected him to be crowned king. So what's he talking about going away? They can't figure it out. It's here in verses 16 and 17 that we see the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. To this he adds in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Who is the helper? The Holy Spirit. Notice the character of the Holy Spirit. He is to be our helper who will never leave us. He will be with us forever. He is to be our spirit of truth. He will teach us all things and help us to remember everything that Jesus has said. When we are being tempted by sin, it's the interceding power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to, be, to flee, to be set free. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 and says as much, and I do confess I memorized the verse in the old NIV 84, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out from under it so that you can endure it. I asked the question earlier, how do I live the Christian life and not do the things that I used to do? I think our understanding of the text today gives us the answer. It's through the ever-present power of Kavayola, the Holy Spirit. But wait, is that the only thing that we use the power of Kavayola for? If all we do with the power of the Holy Spirit is bottle it up inside of us so that we do not sin, 
then it sounds like we've built a dam to reservoir the water. Or maybe we've stopped the flow at least, at least turned it down to a trickle. How do we keep the living waters flowing? I think an example of that answer is found in Acts in 1.8. When Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and Austin and Round Rock, Texas, and California and Hawaii and beyond, even to the end of the earth. Church, I believe that this same power that the disciples received at Pentecost in Acts 2 is the same power given to us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we repent and believe and become children of God. The word power that we see in this verse is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. That's the kind of power that enabled those disciples who were previously hiding in an upper room in fear after the death of Christ to go out and boldly proclaim the gospel to the Jews who had gathered from all over the world and to be able to speak to them in languages that they had never spoke before as they preached the gospel. Here's what I do know. God uses sinners, saved by the blood of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach to those in need of what we have. How did Bobby and I preach the gospel to the inebriated revelers on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras? It wasn't us. It was the living water of the Holy Spirit flowing out of us. How did I preach at the Gay Pride Parade on Market Street in San Francisco? It wasn't me. It was Caviola. I say that the power of Caviola, the living water, will flow out of you when you do what you were commissioned to do. Preach the gospel. Friend, do you know the gospel? The good news that Jesus came to save sinners? Let me share another way that I've used before to proclaim the good news. Maybe you've used it before, because I don't claim to have invented it. You have a person in front of you who has admitted that they believe that he or she will get to heaven because they're a good person. Ever heard that before? Well, you get a piece of paper, you draw on an inverted or horizontal H there, on the bottom half of the paper. You ask them if they know the name of one person in history, other than Jesus, of course, that they know in their head, without a doubt, he's got to be in heaven. Think of some names. You'll always hear Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, St. Paul. So you write the name down on the top line. Then you ask them, for the name of one person in history who without a doubt was so bad, so did such heinous things that they must be in hell. Hitler come to mind, Attila the Hun. You write the name down on the bottom line. 
You see what we've done is we've just created a graph. Now I'm going to hand the person my pen and I'm going to ask them to draw a line where they think they fall on this graph. They always draw the line a little bit closer to the guy on top and a little bit further away from the guy on the bottom. But then I ask on this graph, where do you think the cutoff line is for who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? And they'll draw that dotted line always just a little bit under where they are. Let's see, that assures them they're going to heaven. And here is where you take the pen back. Because the Bible says that you have to be that good to infinity and beyond in order to get there. Well, who's good enough to get there then? Who can be that good? Certainly none of us. That's what the Bible says. No one is righteous. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there was one person, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So friend, if you're here today and you've never understood your need for this gift, if the Holy Spirit has illuminated my words to you today and you have come to understand your greatest need, the Bible says to repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sinful ways and turn to God. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Admit, believe, confess that Jesus is Lord. Our application that I want you to take home with today is let's commit to using the power of Kavaiola to proclaim the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission. Our closing prayer comes from Isaiah 58 and 11 and Nehemiah 8.10. So if you'd bow your heads with me. May our God guide you always. May he satisfy your needs in this gospel-starved, sun-scorched and sinful land that we live in. May you know that he will strengthen your frame. May you see how our God, through the power the Son promised us in Kavaiola, will make you like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. May God be glorified through the preaching of his gospel and may the word that comes from our mouth not return void, but instead bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And Nehemiah 8.10, go your way, Eat the fruit and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We pray this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they all said,
Amen.